Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm here with my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hi, Kindred Spirits. Reagan, are you on TikTok? Barely. I mean, I have it on my phone so that I can watch the TikToks that you send me. Appropriate. Appropriate. I'm, I'm happy I, to know that, actually. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's about it. Like, you know, every once in a while, I'll go on there if I want a little bit of a time suck, but it's I'm not regularly on TikTok. I think my husband and my mom are the same. They both like have the app downloaded just so they can watch what I send them, but otherwise are like a little mystified by the whole thing. I am a little obsessed with TikTok and I'm always picking up interesting information, whether it's a life hack or a first person news from the other side of the world. I learned so much about like different protests and other movements across the globe from TikTok. It's incredible. But anyway, one I watched really recently posed a super interesting cocktail party question that I would love to ask you. So the question is this. After you die, as you approach the pearly gates of whatever afterlife you believe in, you are given the opportunity to return to Earth for five minutes. Now, unfortunately, you can't see anyone you left behind because you don't want to scare them or confuse them. So where do you go? Huh. Okay, well, you answer this first and let me think about it for a sec. It is a really tough question, right? Yeah. And I wanted to bring it up because I was so surprised by my own instinctive response to this. And that was that I really wanted to watch the sunset on the beach where I grew up. As we've talked about on the pod before, I was lucky enough to grow up in a Southern California beach town, but it has changed so much since when I was a kid that I don't even really think of it all that often or really super fondly anymore. But in the context of this question in particular, I realized that that was the last view I wanted to see on earth. A perfect farewell to my home. Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks. Okay. So yeah, it's hard to answer because of course my first instinct is to at least be able to observe someone I left behind. Right. So I'm floundering a bit without it. Like, I'm like the first thing I, when I think about it is like, what would be the last thing you would want to see would be the people that I left. But if that's not the option, no, then here's my first thought, which is that I want to be in New York Mm. eating a fresh bagel in central park and just watching humanity wander by just observing people living their lives and being surrounded by like kind of that idea that there are so many people and so many lives happening all at once and isn't that just wonderful i love that answer very opening monologue in love actually by the way oh yes okay (laughs) right exactly like love really is all around No, but it's so true. I mean, there's something like so humanity affirming about just being in a big crowd um, and watching people live their lives. That was one of the things I really loved about living in New York City because Mm -hmm. New York is such a pedestrian town. Everybody walks. I actually really kind of like being surrounded by people in that way. It really, mm-hmm. it really helps me with perspective because it just really makes you remember that all of these people have lives and mm-hmm. are happy or sad or disappointed or excited or loving or hating something. And it just, I don't know, I find it very moving to be in that moment, just really aware of how we're all human together. I think that's really beautiful. And I think that's part of like the energy that makes visiting a big city like New York, especially a big pedestrian city like New York, you know, so special and so singular. I mean, you just don't get that. You certainly don't get that here in LA where everybody's kind of in our cars all the time. Yeah. Um, And not in suburban areas too, where, you know, people are pretty separated out in their homes. I remember one of my New York friends once told me that you aren't a true New Yorker until you've cried on the subway. (laughs) That sounds right. Which I thought was such an interesting marker of that, but that's exactly what you're talking about. That thing about like, you were just out there living your life in the world, in public and experiencing whatever you're experiencing that day. You know, maybe it's the worst day of your life. Maybe it was a terrible breakup or someone you cared about died and you're on the subway fully just bawling. (laughs) (laughs) To me, New York is very much the place where I felt like I became a grown up because Mm -hmm. that's, that's where I went to college, right? So this is the first time feeling really on my own. And Feeling like I could navigate myself around in this sea of humanity and just watching and seeing people having those moments, right? Little kids trading Pokemon cards on the subway and, you know, 
business guys with their backpacks reading some unexpected book and little old ladies with their shopping carts. And you're kind of like, oh, what are we having for dinner tonight? And like people fighting and people falling in love and people doing business deals and people playing music. And just, I don't know, there's something very powerful to me in that. I love that answer, Reagan. I really do. Well, why don't we move into our kindred spirit for this episode, who is once again, the inimitable Anne Shirley. Obviously, we cannot get enough of our girl. In this episode, we want to reflect on one of Anne's most significant character arcs. So for our quote of the episode, we wanted to reflect a little bit on the Anne we see towards the end of the book. You don't chatter half as much as you used to, Anne, nor use half as many big words. What has come over you? Anne colored and laughed a little as she dropped her book and looked dreamily out the window where the big, fat, red buds were bursting out on the creeper in response to the lure of the spring sunshine. I don't know. I don't want to talk as much, she said, denting her chin thoughtfully with her forefinger. It's nicer to think dear, pretty thoughts and keep them in one's heart like treasures. I don't like to have them laughed at or wondered over, and somehow I don't want to use big words anymore. It's almost a pity, isn't it? Now that I'm really growing big enough to say them if I did want to, it's fun to be almost grown up in some ways, but it's not the kind of fun I expected, Marilla. There's so much to learn and do and think that there isn't time for big words. Just as Anne grows out of using grandiose words and sharing her whimsical flights of fancy with anyone who happens to be in earshot, Anne also comes to master some of her greatest shortcomings, her pride and stubbornness. In our story club today, we are going to talk about Anne's pride and stubbornness and how that goes hand in hand with her temper. Anne's outbursts show up frequently in her first year at Green Gables, but her stubbornness and pride are a through line for her over the entire five years of the book. But like most things, her stubbornness and pride have a flip side, loyalty and tenacity. Our first clue to Anne's pride is a bit late in the game for Marilla's taste. Marilla certainly knows that Anne is a bit odd, much more creative and imaginative than Marilla understands, without much religious education or reverence, a little high strung, and of course, terribly talkative. But Marilla and Matthew both seem to trust that there's an essential sweetness in Anne. Marilla seems to think that Anne will be like a warm lump of clay, willing to be molded into a dutiful, polite little girl. What a shock then, when Anne loses her temper spectacularly at Marilla's next-door neighbor and closest friend, Mrs. Lynde. Well, they didn't pick you for your looks, that's sure and certain, was Mrs. Rachel Lynde's emphatic comment. Mrs. Rachel was one of those delightful and popular people who pride themselves on speaking their mind without fear or favor. She's terrible skinny and homely, Marilla. Come here, child, and let me have a look at you. Lawful heart, did anyone ever see such freckles? And hair as red as carrots? Come here, child, I say. Anne came there, but not exactly as Mrs. Rachel expected. With one bound, she crossed the kitchen floor and stood before Mrs. Rachel, her face scarlet with anger, her lips quivering, and her whole slender form trembling from head to foot. I hate you, she cried in a choked voice, stamping her foot on the floor. I hate you! I hate you! I hate you! A louder stamp with each assertion of hatred. So, even when Marilla admonishes Anne in the middle of her tirade, she continues, telling Mrs. Lynde that she hopes she hurts Mrs. Lynde's feelings just as Mrs. Lynde has hurt hers. She stamps her feet and slams the door on her way out. It's an exhilarating display of temper, and one that stuns Marilla and Mrs. Lynde. Marilla scolded Anne for flying into a fury and told Anne that she must go and apologize to Mrs. Lynde. So that's Anne's temper, but next is where we see Anne's stubbornness kick in. Hot on the heels of her bout in the ring with Mrs. Lynde, Marilla's demand that Anne then apologize seems to hit Anne right in her sense of injustice. She declares she will endure any punishment. It's clear Anne understands she crossed a line and deserves some kind of comeuppance, though Marilla declines to lock Anne in a dungeon, as Anne suggests, but she will not apologize. Marilla confines Anne to her room until she agrees to apologize to Mrs. Lynde. And for a full day, Anne obstinately refuses. She won't even eat anything off the tray that Marilla leaves outside her room. It's not until Matthew goes up to talk to Anne and tells her that he misses her that she softens. When Matthew does go up to see Anne, though, she seems absolutely committed to her course of action and has resigned herself to living a solitary life in her room. She tells Matthew that although she is lonely, she can pass the time with her imagination. Apparently... If Matthew had not seen fit to stick his oar in, she might have stayed in that room forever. 
but she is willing to apologize not for Mrs. Lind, that is too far for her pride, but for Mm -hmm. Matthew, who she does love. I think it's so funny to think of Anne just having made up her mind that since she cannot apologize to Mrs. Lind, that is unthinkable. She will instead just live in this room for the rest of her life. Yeah. That's what imaginations are for. I can do it. (laughs) Another example of Anne's temper is the incident where she allows herself to be goaded into walking the ridgepole. In our episode about the girls of Avonlea, we discussed how Josie Pye seems to know exactly the way to needle and slyly insult everyone. We also noted that Diana and most of the other Avonlea girls seem pretty unperturbed by Josie's rudeness and casual cruelty. They know her well enough to know that giving her attention only gives her power. But Anne hasn't learned that lesson yet, and Josie seems to take pleasure in finding new and inventive ways of provoking Anne. How else would Anne have ended up walking the perilous high point of a roof? Anne knew full well it was a foolish thing to do. I must do it. My honor is at stake, said Anne solemnly. I shall walk that ridgepole, Diana, or perish in the attempt. If I am killed, you are to have my pearl bead ring. I like that she at least is making uh, arrangements for her death. (laughs) She takes a moment to make sure her bequests will be honored. Yep. But yeah, Anne's honor, that sense of pride is so fragile that she will not sacrifice it, even in the face of clear danger. And she clearly understands that attempting to walk the ridgepole is very dangerous. Yeah, she knows exactly what she's getting into. But, you know, honor and pride are more important to her in this moment. In Anne's mind, there's only one way this could go. Since Josie dared her to do something, Anne would not back down from that dare. It always makes me laugh a little bit, the aftermath, when Marilla is talking to Anne about this. And Anne's like, of course I had to walk the ridgepole. She dared me. What else was there to do? And Marilla's like, not do it. Not walk the ridgepole. Walk (laughs) away. (laughs) There's no such thing as like, a dare is not a binding contract. And she's like, I does not compute. No, No, does not compute. (laughs) No. Absolutely not. The most memorable instances of Anne's pride getting the better of her are undoubtedly those involving Gilbert Blythe, breaking her slate over Gilbert's head after he calls her carrots, and then refusing his offer of friendship after his rescue in Barry's Pond. We touched briefly on this in our Gilbert episode, but we really wanted to take a minute to unpack why Anne is so agitated by Gilbert in that first instance, and then so incapable of apology and reconciliation later on. When Gilbert calls Anne carrots in the schoolhouse, recall that it's early in Anne's life in Avonlea, early in her time at Green Gables. She knows Matthew and Marilla plan to keep her and raise her, but that knowledge is contrary to everything she's experienced beforehand. Although she may understand that the Cutberts intend to keep her at Green Gables, send her to school and church and Sunday school and picnics and let her roam the beautiful landscape when her chores are done, Her past lived experience is that people who have taken her in have forced her to work as unpaid household help and neglected her happiness and personhood and then passed her on when they had no more use for her. So that's the Anne we are dealing with at this point in the story. She's settling in at Green Gables. She's learning Marilla's expectations for her. She's making friends with Diana. She's making tentative overtures into Avonlea society, but she's by no means comfortable and assured of her place in this new world. And then a strange boy, a handsome boy, a popular boy, an Avonlea boy, teases Anne in this really specific way that activates her most vulnerable self. We have evidence in the text that Anne believes that the reason she was mistreated in her youth was because she was not pretty and that her lack of physical attractiveness and specifically her red hair is what prevented Anne from being loved by an adoptive family. Remember her first ever prayer, Please let me stay at Green Gables, and please let me be good-looking when I grow up. Those things are fully entwined for Anne. We also saw Anne fly off the handle to Mrs. Lynde when Mrs. Lynde called Anne's hair red as carrots. With all this foreshadowing, readers aren't surprised by Anne's violent reaction to Gilbert's teasing. In fact, I don't know about you, but I always cheer for Anne in this moment. I saw Anne's slate smashing as some justice for all the victims of schoolyard teasing. But Anne has shocked everyone, including herself. Her temper and her pride have caused Anne to do something terrible, something rageful, volatile, unladylike, and unchristian. Hitting a schoolmate with a slate is exactly the kind of thing that an orphan who might put strychnine down the well would do. In that moment, Anne lived up to the stereotypes about orphans, the bad stereotypes. And there was probably a part of her that sensed her new safe life at Green Gables was in jeopardy. Oh, Anne. 
I'm with you, Reagan. I think it's brilliant when Anne stands up to the teasing. And, you know, slate smashing might not be very decorous, but there's no long-term harm done. Well, I also think there's a reason why that moment is so iconic when we think of Anne of Green Gables. Mm. I think there is something to that. The way that she stands up for herself, it's not the the textbook right way to stand up for herself, Mm -hmm. but she stands up for herself and she's not letting anybody push her around and that she's not taking the teasing lying down. No. And I don't know about you, but it always feels like for so many kids, when you get teased, even we're not even talking about bullying, just garden variety kids teasing, you often feel caught off guard, like you just end up kind of taking it and not knowing what to say or how to express that this feels bad and that you shouldn't be treated this way. So Anne's moment of smashing her slate over Gilbert's head, she's doing that thing that we all sort of kind of dream of doing. Yeah, that we all wish we could do, right? Yeah. Standing up for herself in a really dramatic way. It's such a a strong sort of cultural narrative that, okay, well, if you're being teased, just ignore it and it'll go away. Right. Higher (laughs) ground. And maybe that's true. A lot of times it is in a sort of schoolyard setting. If the bully isn't getting the negative attention they want, they'll they'll turn away. But it doesn't make it okay. I mean, right. We don't recommend smashing your slate over somebody's head. Yes. We recommend we recommend asserting yourself. Right. (laughs) But not feeling afraid, (laughs) not feeling afraid to assert yourself and not feeling afraid to say what Anne says, which is that this hurts. This, this hurts, hurts you hurt me. my feelings. Yes. That's what she says to Mrs. Lynde. And that's what she says to Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I can't be too mad at Anne for this. It was maybe a little too far, but I think that. Of course. In that moment. But I think that idea of really making that strong statement of I will not be treated like this. I'm not going to tolerate this. Anyway, then, of course, heaping insult upon injury, Mr. Phillips, that ineffective school teacher, punishes Anne in a manner that just adds to her humiliation by having her sit in front of the class under a blackboard where he has written, Anne Shirley has a very bad temper. Anne Shirley must learn to control her temper. Now, not only is Anne shamed in this very public way, a way designed to make sure her classmates don't forget the awful thing that she has just done, but he has also misspelled her name, the indignity. Absolutely. I have to point out, though, Mr. Phillips is awful, of course, but he's also not wrong. Anne does have a bad temper, and she does need to learn to control it. And she did hit another student. That's not okay. And she will, of course, learn to control her temper as the book progresses. But right now, in this moment, she's 11 years old and new in town. I can only imagine the deep, soul-scorching humiliation of having to sit for hours under a sign declaring my worst faults, even as an adult. For a sensitive kid like Anne... This punishment is far worse than writing lines or a rap on the hands would be. Which, by the way, we are not condoning corporal punishment, but, you know, a hand wrap is the kind of punishment that would have been in Mr. Phillips's disciplinary toolkit. For sure. Maud tells us that Anne is a uniquely sensitive child. For Anne to take things calmly would have been to change her nature. All spirit and fire and dew she was. The pleasures and pains of life came to her with trebled intensity. Marilla felt this and was vaguely troubled over it, realizing that the ups and downs of existence would probably bear hardly on this impulsive soul and not sufficiently understanding that the equally great capacity for delight might more than compensate. So when Anne is punished at school, she takes all that deep feeling of humiliation and injustice and hurt of this instance and crams them into a Gilbert Blythe-shaped box. Gilbert becomes the symbol and the source of her shame, not her own actions or Mr. Phillips' too harsh punishment. And so when we understand the depths of Anne's emotional response, we can also begin to understand why Anne nurtured this grudge against him for the next five years of their lives. Let me repeat, five years. Yep. (laughs) As Maud tells us, Anne had certainly an unpraiseworthy tenacity for holding grudges. She was as intense in her hatreds as in her loves. Mm-hmm. Gilbert has brought out the very worst of Anne for anyone to see. Everything she's sensitive about, every fear she has. She's ashamed of herself, and that's the most vulnerable feeling there is. So she turns it into all Gilbert's fault for provoking her to counter that feeling of shame. For all the ways that readers and people in Avonlea could see that Anne and Gilbert should have been friends, their intelligence, ambition, their big ideas, their spirits, 
Anne could only see the boy who caused this deep mortification. I shall never forgive Gilbert Blythe, said Anne firmly. And Mr. Phillips spelt my name without an E, too. The iron has entered my soul, Diana. And then for the next five years, Anne went around telling anyone who would listen that she would not go back on that statement. Anne's pride prevented her from making up with Gilbert, despite his sincere attempts to make amends. He apologizes. He offers her a white flag in the form of a candy heart. But most notably, Anne's pride stands in the way of accepting a humble offer of Gilbert's friendship after he rescues her from Barry's Pond. Now, we've talked about this scene a couple times already on the pod, so I'm going to ask you to think about this from Gilbert's perspective. Imagine that you are a 16-year-old boy happily rowing across the pond on a beautiful summer day. All of a sudden, the text literally says much to his amazement, you encounter a girl that you know from school holding on to the pile of a bridge for dear life. Now, you have to set aside whether or not Gilbert's rescue has any kind of ulterior purpose, right? Like, does he see this as a way to get Anne to like him again? Does he have a crush on her? Set aside all those notions influenced by Jonathan Crombie's Gilbert. <laughs> Let's just take the text at its word that Gilbert is a kind, avenly boy who's helping a neighbor in trouble. Without waiting for answer, he pulled close to the pile and extended his hand. Gilbert just helps Anne because that's what you do. He isn't waiting for an apology or explanation or penitence or groveling. He's going to rescue her because he's fundamentally decent. And I think that's very true. I don't think in this moment there's any way that Gilbert has an ulterior motive. He's seeing Anne hanging out literally on the pile of the bridge and just goes to rescue her. I think he would do that for anyone. So here you are, right? You're rowing your boat. You're rescuing the girl. It's a beautiful day. You're 16. You have a boat with a girl who you rescued. Seems like this would be a great time to say, hey, let's try being friends, right? Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not if the girl in question is Anne Shirley, whose stubborn pride will never let her go back on her vow to forsake Gilbert Blythe forevermore. As the text tells us, The bitterness of her old grievance promptly stiffened up her wavering determination. That scene of two years before flashed back into her recollection as vividly as if it had taken place yesterday. Gilbert had called her carrots, and he had brought about her disgrace before the whole school. Her resentment, which to other and older people might be as laughable as its cause, was in no whit allayed and softened by time, seemingly. She hated Gilbert Blythe. She would never forgive him. And in our Gilbert episode, I know we were both so frustrated that Anne could just not let Gilbert off the hook in this moment. I know. Still, still frustrated, right? (laughs) But I think that when we understand how deeply wounded Anne was by the carrots incident, how that was so precisely calibrated to affect her deepest fears and vulnerabilities, we can also understand Anne's continued inability to absolve Gilbert of his role in it. Anne's pride is all mixed up and interconnected with her deepest fears and insecurities. And until she can work through her vulnerability about her worth and appearance and lovability, she is going to hold on to that stubborn pride like it is a lifeline. Yeah. And just just think about it. She's extremely vulnerable in this moment. She's soaking wet. She is not in a position to refuse his help. So yet again, she's deeply vulnerable in front of Gilbert. She doesn't have the strength in this moment to let herself actually be vulnerable and accept his offer of friendship. She has to double down on her anger instead. Anger always feels more powerful than vulnerability. And what's interesting about Anne's pride in regards to Gilbert is how even after this moment by the pond that she almost instantly regrets, she still can't make the first move to be his friend. Mm -hmm. She has rejected him soundly, and even when she can acknowledge to herself that she's no longer angry at him, she can't bring herself to show it at all. Pride, the refusal to admit that she's wrong, is all that's standing between her and Gilbert. At least, neither Gilbert nor anybody else, not even Diana, should ever suspect how sorry she was and how much she wished she hadn't been so proud and horrid. She determined to shroud her feelings in deepest oblivion. And it may be stated here and now that she did it so successfully that Gilbert, who possibly was not quite so indifferent as he seemed, could not console himself with any belief that Anne felt his retaliatory scorn. Anne has really made a model of this whole situation, hasn't she? She has. But I get it. She's at a crossroads in this Lily Maid moment where it's like she can either look some of her own foibles in the face and own up to her part in this. 
or she can just keep doing what she's always done. Yeah. And so, like you said, she holds on to that pride like a lifeline. That's the strongest tool she feels like she has. And even though she almost instantly regrets it, she feels like that's really her only option at that time. Well, and I think it makes a lot of sense. If you think about any of those moments where you have felt really scared or mm-hmm. humiliated or embarrassed, like that is not a good moment for you no. to own your own mistakes. You just can't. You have it's to feel, hard. yeah, you have to feel strong and sure and secure in order to do that. And being or half around. Or it has to be a situation where maybe the stakes feel a little bit lower or something like that. Yeah. I feel like this has been something that as an adult, I've worked on a lot, admitting when I'm wrong, being open to criticism and critique. That's the kind of thing you work on in your 30s and your 40s. That is not something you're mastering at 13. Absolutely. This is also so markedly different than the way that Anne is with almost everyone else. Anne often wears her heart on her sleeve, so to speak, and she's relatively frank about her other shortcomings, right? She doesn't mind admitting to Marilla that she's vain or that her imagination has bested her in some situation or another. She owns her silly and careless mistakes. But in regards to Gilbert, Anne's pride always wins out against her better nature. Anne's pride just drags on and on there. That Lily made incident happen before the Queen's class is formed, so we still have nearly another two years to go of this. Anne knows she's no longer angry at Gilbert, but she still can't go do anything about it. And whether this is because Gilbert is now deliberately ignoring Anne back, and so that sting is fueling her pride... Or whether she's just so committed to this course of action, right? She's committed to the bit. Like she's going to stick this no matter Absolutely, what. Absolutely, right? What is that? The, the sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> the sunk cost fallacy, exactly. Well, she's already told everyone she's never talking to him. You know, it's it, she can't go back. There are also just so very many people who know about this rivalry that it seems like it's some sort of defeat to speak to Gilbert. You know, the book doesn't really specify. And I think it's probably all of the above, right? As they all wait for that queen's pass list to come out, Anne thinks they had passed each other on the street a dozen times without any sign of recognition. And every time, Anne had held her head a little higher and wished a little more earnestly that she had made friends with Gilbert when he asked her and vowed a little more determinedly to surpass him in the examination. And it's so interesting right there how she wants these two contradictory things. She wishes she had made friends with him when he had given her the chance. And she's vowing more determinedly to surpass him in the examination. She can't, even in the privacy of her own thoughts, let that pride relax at all. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes back to because those feelings of vulnerability and shame from the Slate incident are so intense, you know, even now, years and years later, she can't think of him in any kind of a mild or moderate way. It yeah. always has to be this big all or nothing thing. Either they're friends or he's dead to her. Yeah. And I think there is something that speaks to the way that we experience shame. I talk about this a mm. lot in therapy with clients, right? Because shame is the most uncomfortable feeling that there is. And people will go to extraordinary lengths to not feel shame. And that is exactly what Anne is doing here. She's so ashamed of how she behaved in that moment and all of those very intense feelings that it brings up that she's going to these extraordinary lengths to not feel that and to not confront that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been kind of saying this whole episode, like, oh my goodness, five years of this, this is so crazy. But think about how long it really does take to unpack some of those darkest moments and deepest points of shame, right? It's not something that you can just flip on a dime. And so this is a very logical part of Anne's growth. Like she really does have to come to terms with herself and her past and her sense of self-worth in order to get to a place where she can forgive him. Yes. It takes Anne an entire year, a year at Queens where no one else really knows about or cares about the academic rivalry between Anne and Gilbert to finally reach out to Gilbert. And four things have to happen before that finally pushes Anne to swallow her pride. So one is that a year of being in a broader pool of Queens students gives Anne a little space from that claustrophobic nature of the Avonlea schoolhouse, the community that is so invested in the Anne and Gilbert dynamic. Yes. It's like, get out of the fishbowl. Yeah. So being around all of those other students takes the pressure off. If Anne talks to Gilbert in a class where it's all these other students, nobody is going to care. But if she were to do that in the Avonlea schoolroom, 
everybody would be like, oh my God, did you see that? Did you see? Did you see? Or if, you know, they walk home together from school or from church or something like that, all of a sudden every tongue is wagging. Yes. Mrs. Lind is rushing over. She has an opinion. I'm sure she, (laughs) right? Everybody does. The gossip train is immediately activated. Yeah. So being in this bigger class of students and particularly Anne and Gilbert are the only two from Avonlea doing the intensive program. So their day-to-day classes are always students who are not from Avonlea, who don't know them or know what happens between the two of them. And that gives a little bit of space for the intensity of their interactions, I think, to lessen. And that gives Anne a little bit of space there. Yeah. In perspective. Mm-hmm. I think there's a scene where she's looking around a sea of new faces on one of her first Queen's classes. And then she sees one she recognizes and it's Gilbert. And she can't go to him because of her pride, because of her stubbornness. Mm-hmm. And she can't do the normal natural thing, which is to go sit with someone she knows. And instead she takes a seat on the other side of the room. And it's just like, Ugh, Anne, come on. Mm-hmm. But I think that year of Queens makes a big difference yeah. for the two of them. I think it eases the intensity of the glare on it. But another thing that happens at the end of their year at Queens is Matthew's death. Mm-hmm. And that death throws into sharp relief for Anne what really matters in this life. And it's a final push into maturity. Yeah. After experiencing such a deep loss, the silliness of her pride seems so small and insignificant. And just a waste of her time and energy. When someone you love dies, you're reminded that you just have to say what you need to say to people. Yeah. And wasting time on this kind of pettiness is not important in the big scheme of life. Mm -mm. The third thing that happens is Marilla shares how her own pride ruined a romance between Marilla and Gilbert's father Mm -hmm. and how she regretted not accepting his apology when he offered it and that she didn't get another opportunity. And that Marilla always regretted it and always wondered what would have happened if she had said sorry when he had offered his own apology. Sure. And I wonder if that story highlights for Anne that there might come a time when it's too late to change course, that she won't have another chance to connect with Gilbert. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the last thing is Gilbert gives up the Avonlea school for Anne. As we discussed in Gilbert's episode, he does this with no expectation of anything from Anne. He just quietly made the choice on his own because it was a good thing to do. We love you, Gilbert. We really do. And you can see in the moment that Anne meets him on the road after learning about the school, it's still hard for her to thank him. She just flushes furiously, but she gets the words out. And once that moment has passed, she quickly turns to developing a meaningful friendship with him. And the two spend half an hour talking avidly at the gate. (laughs) It really is such a good example of how sometimes things are so much worse in your head than they ever are in real life. Anne had built up so much pride around Gilbert. The idea of talking to him seemed so horribly humiliating. Like he was going to laugh at her or cast up her mistakes in front of her or whatever, whatever it is that she's been imagining about finally talking to him. Mm -hmm. She's imagined it to be so much worse than it actually ended up being. Literally two sentences from her and Gilbert was eagerly her friend. He didn't hold it over her or punish her emotionally in return. Now, was that so hard, Anne? Uh, Was that so hard? I mean, it was. It was for her. Once they ripped the Band-Aid off, you know, they were able to progress and bless Gilbert for barely even teasing her and just saying, this is how it's supposed to be. We're meant to be friends. And of course, he's not wrong. Anne had to do a lot of work to get there. She did. It seems like such a small moment, but it took so much work for her to move through this. Mm -hmm. And you can't rush that. You can't rush that. Now, of course, there is a positive flip side to Anne's pride. She is deeply loyal to the people she loves. She never wavers in her friendship to Diana, even when she goes to Queens and meets other girls who are as ambitious and intelligent as she is. Once Anne has pledged her eternal friendship, she is committed for as long as the sun and the moon shall endure, she says. She's also deeply loyal to Matthew and Marilla, giving up her scholarship so she can help keep Green Gables, the place that all three of them loved. 
We see that that same pride that keeps her from being friends with Gilbert also pushes her academically, and that tenacity quickly becomes not just about beating Gilbert, but about learning and pursuing her own ambition. Remember that even under the dull and uninspired Mr. Phillips, we know that Anne is a pupil so inflexibly determined on learning. We see many times that Anne holds herself to high standards academically and pushes herself to stay focused, even when she wants to be doing other things. One quote on this that I love is, Anne sighed and, dragging her eyes from the witcheries of the spring world, the beckoning day of breeze and blue, and the green things upspringing in the garden, buried herself resolutely in her book. There would be other springs, but if she did not succeed in passing the entrance, Anne felt convinced she would never recover sufficiently to enjoy them. I love the witcheries of the spring world. Mm -hmm. We see that over five years of the book, Anne is able to conquer her insecurities, fears, and vulnerabilities as she grows up. She becomes safe and secure in the knowledge that Matthew and Marilla love her and that Green Gables is her home. She finds her place within Avonlea and learns that she prefers a quiet life in the village to all the splendor and finery of city life. She applies herself to her education and gives her bright, sharp mind plenty of inspiration. And she excels. She excels in dramatic recitations. She excels in the Queen's entrance exams. She excels in winning the Avery Scholarship. She gives herself so much more to be proud of that she can finally overcome that righteous, stubborn pride. I think that's such a useful distinction, being proud of yourself and your mm -hmm. accomplishments and pride. Yep. And I think yep. that that's a very good example, that when she has things that she truly is proud of, she can let go of this rigidity in her pride. That's really true. And because so much of her pride was focused on what she felt to be her defects, right? Her yeah. attractiveness or her self-worth. Once she's able to see herself for what a wonderful person she is, so smart, so intelligent, so driven, so acclaimed, that can fill up a lot of that just self-esteem and self-worth that she needs to not rely on that stubborn pride as a crutch. Yes. The reader's first indication that Anne is growing out of her pride is when we see her feelings towards Josie Pye, of all people, at Queens. Oh, Josie. <laughs> Although Anne still doesn't like Josie, for good reason, she can appreciate that Josie is a connection to a place she loves. Josie doesn't provoke Anne the way she used to. And Anne, now as much a part of Avonlea as Diana, can say, well, that's a pie for you. We then see that Anne can even take criticism about her red hair when Josie insults Anne's hair after Matthew's funeral of all the wildly inappropriate times and places. Josie is, she is just the worst. <laughs> and can just sort of roll her eyes, shrug it off, and declare there's no point in caring about the opinions of someone who can't be kind. Now that is incredible growth. In the same passage, we can see that Anne has made peace with her appearance and she's decorating her red hair with yellow honeysuckle. Anne's own acceptance of her looks is part of why she can easily pardon Josie's tactlessness and pettiness. She can see it for the pettiness that it is, yeah. not as a blow to her honor, mm -hmm. where with the Ridgepole incident, that's what it was. It was this blow to her honor, to her as a person. Yeah, and now a she critical could be like, blow to who she is. Yes, to selfhood. And now she could be like, whatever. Whatever. Pies are just going to be that way. Yep. Pie's gonna pie. <laughs> Anne's conflict with Gilbert Blythe is one of those few narrative threads that spans most of the book. The moment the conflict resolved signals the moment when Anne has likewise resolved her character's major growth arcs. In order to reconcile with Gilbert, she must sincerely apologize and confess. We saw Anne begin with her insincere apology to Mrs. Lynde at the beginning of the book and her untruthful confession to Marilla about the amethyst brooch. But over time, with practice, through repeated apologies and confessions <laughs> to Mrs. Barry, Aunt Josephine, Mrs. Allen, Miss Stacy, and Marilla. <laughs> to name a few. To name a few. <laughs> you know, we also watched as Anne grew in sincerity and candor. And then secondly, in order to reconcile with Gilbert, Anne must also overcome her pride. Just as we saw Anne learn to replace indignation and frustration toward Josie Pye with polite resignation, in her relationship with Gilbert, she is able to set aside humiliation and hurt feelings and find a way forward through camaraderie and shared ambition. And Anne's ability to do so in the final chapters demonstrates that she has grown and matured to the point where her old hurts are not quite as painful and her pride is not more important than real friendship and community. 
I think that that's very powerful that her hurts are no longer as painful. And when you're not trying to protect yourself from further hurt, that lets you be open to other people. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. In this last chapter of the book, it seems like everything happens all at once. Who is this mature, self-assured young woman who can laugh at Mrs. Lind, grieve for Matthew, find a job, renounce college, come up with an independent study, save Marilla, save Green Gables, maintain her friendship with Diana, and forgive Gilbert Blythe all in the space of a few pages? It is Anne, who has now become the Avonlea insider herself, and who is watching out of her window for the next bend in the road. In our Birch Path Detour today, let's talk a little bit about a few of Anne's literary soul sisters. We love so many of the heroines of children's literature, and I think everyone has a few favorites. I think one book and heroine that immediately come to mind as akin to Anne is Mary Lennox from The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. The Secret Garden was published in 1911, so it is definitely a contemporary of Anne. In The Secret Garden, Mary is age 10, and like Anne, she's an orphan, and like Anne, she becomes deeply connected to nature. Mary is also very spirited and doesn't mind showing her temper and her anger, and she also has to learn how to manage her temper throughout the course of the book. Of course, the two are very different as well. Mary is spoiled and sulky at the start of the book and is instantly disliked by most people. And Anne, while she may get off on the wrong foot with Mrs. Lynde, charms most of the folks she meets very quickly. Mary has to learn to become connected to nature as part of her healing, whereas Anne seems born into the romantic tradition of the natural world. Mm -hmm. But they both have spunk and strength of character that make them vivid and interesting. Unfortunately, we don't get to see Mary grow up as much as we do Anne, but I'm sure that Mary also becomes an independent and charismatic woman as she grows and moves out into the world. I kind of have like Mary Lennox headcanon a little bit where I think she becomes Lady Mary from Downton Abbey. I love it. I can see that. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how she gets there, but I could I could see that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't really connected all the threads either, but there's kind of like a haughtiness that both of those Marys share. You know, like a fundamental goodness, but you know, high high levels of snobbery. Yeah. Um, and I say that lovingly. I adore Mary Lennox. I really Me too. Do. And then this also makes me think Anne of Green Gables and the Secret Garden are both really playing into that romantic era, Wordsworthian space we were talking about in our last episode of nature being like this great healing force. Here are these two little girls, two orphans, basically alone in the world. They are unattractive, unloved, unwanted. And it's their appreciation for the natural world that saves them spiritually. The Secret Garden is such a favorite of mine. And to be honest, I always liked it a little better than A Little Princess. Me too. And I think part of it is that in The Secret Garden, Mary is the agent of her own growth. Whereas, yeah, in A Little Princess, which I also liked, in the end, kind of what what saves her is, well. Random chance? Yeah, right? An amnesia storyline? I think that's the problem. At A Little Princess. (laughs) (laughs) An amnesia storyline always is a little suspect. Exactly. Basically, she kind of just gets a redo. Yeah, she gets kind of a lucky chance, essentially. Yeah. And even though she's, you know, she does have her imagination. So Sarah Crew in A Little Princess does use her imagination to save her s- spirit in much the same way that Anne does. Mm-hmm. But it's returned in this very dramatic way that's very much about wealth. Yes. And that wealth is sort of the thing that saves her. Whereas I feel like in The Secret Garden, Mary is, she is very much an agent of change. Her own change. Mm-hmm. Collins change the change, change for in the garden the family and in the garden mm-hmm. yeah and so I think that's part of the reason why I really like the secret garden and return to it far more often than a little princess yeah I, I definitely want to do a reread now that we're talking about it it's a beautiful book one of the great things is in March the two of us are going to take my daughter to go see the secret garden the musical and I'm just going to plug that for everybody. It's going to come to the Amundsen in Los Angeles in March. The cast is absolutely outstanding. And this is not as well known a musical as it should be. The music is gorgeous. It is some of the most beautiful musical theater music out there. Just like truly, truly captures that beautiful, romantic, natural world. It's lovely. I can't wait to see it. 
yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so another kind of literary sister, someone who I think often sort of gets included in the conversation when we're talking about Anne of Green Gables is Laura Ingalls Wilder from the Little House books. That first book, Little House in the Big Woods, was published in 1932, so not quite a contemporary of Anne's in terms of publication, but because Wilder was telling the story of her own childhood, a lot of that was happening kind of contemporaneously with Anne. But like Anne, Laura is very tenacious, she certainly has a temper, and she also does have that connection to nature. You know, growing up, I really loved the Little House books. Not quite as much as I loved Anne, but I did read them all several times through. And Laura's life as a homesteader really felt wild and challenging and just a high adventure to me. You never knew what catastrophe was going to befall the Ingalls family next. It was everything. (laughs) Drought, lizards, animal attacks, fever. (laughs) If there was some calamity, it happened to Laura and her family. And then there was that one book, do you remember, where they lived in like a mud house? Yeah, I think that's, is that on the banks of the Plum Creek? Just bananas. The whole thing is bananas. Unfortunately, though, I think that reading these books now and having a lot more education and knowing a lot more about how the westward expansion of Europeans further colonized, displaced, and of course, violently injured people native to North America makes the Ingalls family seem a lot less noble. So to be honest, I almost never return to these books now because of those racist elements. Yeah. And of course, when we're talking about classic children's literature, they are products of the time that they were written. And Anne of Green Gables itself is not free of any of of those kind of more problematic elements. Yeah. And that's something we want to talk about on a further episode because we do see some of those themes in Anne of Green Gables, although perhaps not quite as prominently as you do in the Little House series. Right. I think particularly because the Ingalls family are homesteaders and are specifically Mm -hmm. moving through, quote, Indian territory and having a lot of those encounters and being part of that movement that's so marginalized and was really part of the genocide of Native Americans, it does make it hard to read in that context now. Yeah, I find it so. I think a lot of the sort of thrill of those books has gone out for me. Yeah. But changing topic, speaking of other literary heroines, we cannot forget Joe March of Little Women. Oh, Joe. So Little Women was published in two parts in 1868 and 1869, so quite a bit before Anne. And I think that those of us who love classic children's books tend to fall into two camps, either Little Women or Anne devotees. Oh, Not that I you think can't you're love- totally right. Yeah. Not that you can't love both, but I do think people tend to identify more strongly with one book or the other. So obviously we are team Anne. Yep. (laughs) But if you love Anne, it's likely you also can admire Jo March. She's determined. She's academically driven. She loves literature. She's stubborn and she has a quick temper that gets her in trouble. Yeah, truly. We could do a whole episode just comparing Joe and Anne. There are small details like the fact that they both needed to cut their hair and ended up bucking convention by wearing their hair cropped short. And then big plot points like both of them ended up pursuing writing as a professional career in adulthood. But Reagan, here's my thing with Little Women. I admire Joe so much. I mean, truly, she is just a class A heroine of children's literature. But I am actually an Amy. <laughs> And Amy is practically the villain for the whole first half of Little Women. Justice. Justice for Amy. Justice for my sweet artistic baby who just wants things to be pretty and nice. Oh, okay. I love you, Kelly, but I do not love Amy. Oh, no. Never liked Amy. (laughs) Amy just wanted to have limes (laughs) like the other kids at school. (laughs) She burned Joe's manuscript. She was angry. Oh my God. (laughs) She's the worst. (laughs) Also, Amy marries the attractive boy next door. Opportunity lost, Joe. What were you thinking? (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, Amy forever. (laughs) The other thing is that Louisa May Alcott and Little Women really paved the way for Maude and Anne in profound ways. Children's literature, books about children for children, was in its infancy when Little Women was published. And usually the kinds of books that were being written for kids were very moral and any naughty or misbehaving children received some kind of existential punishment for their bad behavior. Like truly this moralistic, you know, Mm -hmm. would die or some very heavy handed. Yes. But Alka, she wrote a book about kids being kids, making mistakes, arguing and making up, sometimes doing terrible things like burning your sister's manuscript, but still turning out all right in the end and marrying the hot guy. And of course, 
we can't leave out one of the other famous redheads in children's literature, the Swedish heroine Pippi Longstocking. Pippi also has a temper, but unlike Anne, she really loves her red hair and freckles. I don't know whether you were a big Pippi Longstocking reader, but there's a scene in which she goes into town and Annika reads for her. She can't read, Pippi can't read. Annika reads for her the sign in front of a beauty shop that says it's something about freckles and, oh, come come in and talk to us about freckles. And so Mm -hmm. she goes in and she was like, I love my freckles. And they're like, oh, we have a cream that could get rid of that. And she was like, oh no, my freckles are awesome. But if you ever find a cream that gives you more freckles, please send me six cases. Oh, Pippi, we love a body positive queen here. Oh, that's that's so wonderful. I did read Pippi Longstocking. It's I think it wasn't a big favorite of mine. I don't have a super strong recollection of it, but I do mm. love that. It's not as realistic, obviously, as some of these other books that are a little bit mm-hmm. more realistic, whereas, you know, Pippi has this very outrageous, exaggerated lifestyle where she's as strong as 10 men and fabulous right. and wealthy and has lives with like a horse and a monkey. Yeah, but- there's kind of like that tall tale aspect to yes. it. I think that it wasn't, yeah, I think that that didn't quite work for me as a kid, but yeah. what's not to love? Exactly. But I think one of the things we see as we're talking about Anne's literary sisters is that they all have a temper in common. Yep. <laughs> so the unfailingly optimistic Pollyanna and the angelic Heidi, while they are also both orphans like Anne, have a lot less in common with her personality. And I think that Anne's faults, her ability to embrace them, are part of what make her so enduring. It's so much easier to relate to a character that makes the same kind of mistakes that you do. Yeah, like we were talking about with the slate scene, you do cheer Anne on in that moment. I mean, we can talk about and recognize how maybe that behavior wasn't okay, but that is something that as a kid, you were like, yes, get him. Don't let that boy get away with it. And the Pollyannas and Heidi's of the world, of course, are very sweet and lovable, but it's not that same kind of knowing, yes, I'm on your side. I'm cheering for you, even through their sort of foibles. Yeah, there's something a little unachievable about that. Yes, totally. I'd love for us to do an episode at some point about some of the more modern descendants of Anne. We obviously could spend a lot more time talking about other children's literature heroines. Because one thing that's easy to see in this discussion is how the classics are dominated by white girls. Yep. So we'd love to dive into a more diverse range of modern classic heroines that kids today are so lucky to have. They're truly so many wonderful books out there. You know, one of the things that I love is I volunteer in Alice's school library. And so I get to see all the new and fabulous books out there. And I get to see what the kids really gravitate towards. Mm. I just love that today's kids have so much to choose from and that all kids get to find characters that reflect their experiences. So yeah, we really must do further exploration about who are the new literary heroines out there. I would love to get into that a little bit more. If you are writing children's books, if you're writing children's literature, if you're working in that space, you know Anne, you know, you know Joe March, you know Sarah Crew, you know Mary Lennox, you know all the people we've been talking about. And those books are still in conversation with these children's literature classics. And I would love to talk some more about some of the similarities we see. Yes. Well, let's put a pin in that for a future episode. Absolutely. Yeah, and we'll move on to our puff sleeves. So we've talked all episode about how Anne overcomes her stubbornness, but it doesn't leave her entirely, and that is a good thing. Anne just learns to wield it more judiciously. In that final chapter, when Anne tells Marilla that she's going to postpone her enrollment at Redmond, Marilla says that she oughtn't let Anne give up the Avery scholarship. Anne retorts, but you can't prevent me. I'm 16 and a half, obstinate as a mule, as Mrs. Lynde once told me. Anne's stubbornness, which, what is it really, her stubbornness or her conviction, is a key to her journey. She knows that at this point in her life, what she most wants is to give back to Marilla and to Green Gables, and she won't take no for an answer, even from Marilla. I love that way that her pride and her stubbornness become conviction and used in this really lovely way. Yes, exactly. Right. When she knows that she's right, when she knows what she believes in and she really can apply them in a way that reflects her values. Yeah. Yeah. It's great growth. So one of the things I love about Anne was how she was able to learn from her experiences and mistakes. Mm -hmm. After the Lily Maid incident, when Anne and Marilla are talking it through, Anne (laughs) Anne tells Marilla and Matthew, well, I've learned a new and valuable lesson today. 
Ever since I came to Green Gables, I've been making mistakes, and each mistake has helped cure me of some great shortcoming. The affair of the amethyst brooch cured me of meddling with things that didn't belong to me. The haunted wood mistake cured me of letting my imagination run away with me. The liniment cake mistake cured me of carelessness in cooking. Dyeing my hair cured me of vanity. I never think about my hair and nose now, at least very seldom. And today's mistake is going to cure me of being too romantic. And while Anne talks about being cured, really what we find for Anne's journey is how she learns to use so much of these traits deliberately, judiciously, Mm -hmm. instead of letting them carry her way. And that's what we want for our heroines and ourselves. We don't want them to become flawless. No. No. We want to become aware and grow and learn how to pick ourselves up and apologize when we make mistakes. And that's the beautiful thing about Anne and why she is just one of my favorite characters in literature. She's just so well-rounded, right? She doesn't get to the point where she's learned so many lessons and she's so virtuous and good that she becomes flat. She's still her same self. She's just found a way to make that work for her. Yes. So in our Inspired by Anne, one of the things I wanted to share, one of the things that this was making me think of actually was a hundred years ago, maybe not truly a hundred years ago, (laughs) within my lifetime, um, 15 years ago, maybe. One of my incredibly cool bookish friends had a purse that was made from a hardcover book. And it was something that I just sort of thought I would never have because a friend of hers had handmade it. And I just always admired it. I thought it was so unique and so artsy and so just appropriately literary. Well, You know, now you can find everything on Etsy, including purses like this. But today I'm actually going to recommend the website Well Read, which sells accessories and gifts for readers generally, but also they sell book purses specifically. Now, the purses that Well Read sells are not made of actual hardcover books. They're made of vegan leather, but they're made to look like the cover and spine of various classics and popular books. They're really, really cute. Little like crossbody style. So there's a beautiful Anne of Green Gables purse, of course, but I also love the Pride and Prejudice purse, which uses that iconic peacock cover. And I also love the A Room of One's Own purse, which has this like kind of cool minimalist pastel color blocked cover. Highly recommend, well-read for little book purses and other bookish gifts and accessories. Kelly, I clicked on the link to well-read and immediately went down a rabbit hole and now I want everything. I know, right? Those little purses are super cute. And they've got tote bags and Mm -hmm. like cute little pouches and all of those things. Yeah, their designs are darling. Yeah, not going well for like trying not to buy new stuff in January, but that's fine. fine. Well, I am inspired by and going to recommend one of my favorite bookish candle companies. It's called Briarwick Candles. Yes. So they have a ton of book-inspired candles, and so they've got more general book-themed scents like Enchanted Library that smells like parchment, cedarwood, and leather bindings, and one called Reading in Rain that smells like rain, linen, and white tea. And they also have candles inspired by specific books like Pemberley, which smells like an English garden. Love that. Oh, yeah. And lots of fantasy-inspired books. And... And this is the best part. They have a whole licensed collection of candles inspired by Tamara Pierce's Tordal books. Uh, yes. And because Tamara Pierce just doesn't get the love that Harry Potter does yeah. in terms of being able to find merch out there that is specific to her books. So I was so excited. So I may have dropped a few hints on this one too and gotten a few in my Christmas <laughs> stocking. Nice. I've also given a bunch of these candles as gifts. I did Including some book- one to me this past yeah. Christmas. Reagan got me a Briarwick candle that was Gothic Manor themed. It smells amazing. It's been like the perfect accompaniment to some of our dark and stormy nights we've had in LA recently. Exactly. I knew that that was the one for you. I made some book boxes for my family with book themed gifts. So my sister got one called Book Boyfriend because I gave her a romance book. So I thought she would like that one. And I've gotten a few as gifts as well. My daughter gave me an Alice in Wonderland themed one, two of the Tamora Pierce candles, which I haven't burned yet because I lost my sense of smell (laughs) thanks to COVID. (laughs) So I was so excited. We got home from Christmas and I'm like, you always create new candles. (laughs) I know I'm unpacking my bag. That's when I first noticed that I'd lost my sense of smell. And I'm like, because I'd smelled them when I got them, right? Like I opened it and I was like, oh. Yeah, you knew they had it right. <laughs> right. They smell delightful. And then I get home. And I'm like, oh, yay. And I go to open it. And I'm like, oh, nothing is, no. I Time to take a COVID test. <laughs> I couldn't smell a thing. So I was like, oh, so I haven't even got a chance to burn them yet. But that is now that my sense of smell is coming back. I can't wait to burn my Alana themed candle and my Keladry 
Candle, who my that's my favorite Ooh, character. That sounds yeah. wonderful. So that's briarwickcandles.com. If you guys need some new candles, highly recommend. Oh yeah. Okay, Reagan. And I have one other inspired by that I was thinking of while we were recording just now. So this is a little off the cuff. Yes, do it. But I, I just finished this book that if everyone just needs to go read, it's wonderful. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. It was published in 2022, so it's fairly new. It's not a romance. It's a coming-of-age story. There are some romantic elements to it, but it is a fabulous academic rivals story. And if you love the Gilbert and Anne back and forth, and if you love the kind of intensive creativity, the sort of that a, a good rivalry can inspire, this book, you will just love it. It is about a pair of video game designers who meet as children, are connected again in college, and then start designing games together. And just sort of all of their like ups and downs. It's really innovative. There's a whole segment where their relationship plays out in a video game, which I'm Whoa. not much of a gamer, so I wouldn't have thought that that worked for me. And let me tell you, it worked for me. It was great. Yeah, it's it's just wonderful. It's so innovative, so lovely. It's also set in LA. The characters are right around my age, maybe a little older than me, but everything felt very familiar to like my experience of living and growing up in LA. Just a great, great book. All right, on my list. Well, thank you all for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to us and like and review us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. You can also follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. Join us next time when we talk about the 1985 Anne of Green Gables miniseries. Ah, uh, we're so excited for this. If you haven't watched it in a long time, go and watch it now go so you can up. be ready for our next episode. Mm -hmm. We love it so much and we can't wait to talk about it with you. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.